You're listening to Life and Leadership, A Conscious Journey, the podcast that shares wisdom and strength. Join your host, Dr. Michelle St. Jane's weekly conversation on how to have a positive impact for people, planet, and the wider world. If you want to live a life of intention, be proactive with your time, and bring your vision for the future to life one today at a time, you are in the right place at the right time. Let's get started. Straight talking, mental well-being, mindset specialist Sue Kerr has a mission to empower a million people globally and to move from fear to freely living life intentionally. And I celebrate that. So why? You might ask. Well, let's hear her story as she shares about experiencing deep lows on a destructive journey. Sue described this experience as being depressed, drunk and almost dead. But then she rises from ground zero and Sue will tell us about her discovery to recovery. Sue, welcome. I would really value you sharing your story. And I also want to thank you for stepping into your vulnerable self with us here today. Thank you very much, Michelle. You know what? It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I love sharing and saving spaces for people who who are maybe on the same journey that I once was or have been and sharing is caring my grandmother used to say so as far as I'm concerned please do your worst or your best in terms of what you want me to reveal I mean fabulous well perhaps we could just start out with your journey from discovery to recovery if you're comfortable with that Absolutely. In a brief potted history of time, I was born in a decade in the 60s when the whole world was being encouraged to practice love, not war. And accidentally, as an act of love, I landed in this world in April 1960 to two very young and inexperienced parents. And in those days, in typically Northern England style, it was a case of you've made your bed, you literally lie on it and you marry the girl and that's it. So I sort of I became an accidental child and was quickly followed by another accidental child some 12 months later. I ultimately ended up being the eldest of four siblings. But after a decade, when my fourth sibling arrived, the parents had very much changed from from an act of love to mostly warring. And and the journey for us as children was at times traumatic. And and myself in particular struggled massively with having a relationship with a mother who best tolerated me and, and at worst loathed me. I... For whatever reason, you don't know as children, as things unfold, you've no idea why your responsible adults, in inverted commas, are acting the way they are. I found out many, many years later that she ultimately, my mother had had a similar childhood to the one that I endured at her hands, so the familial cycle. The main difference was that she didn't end up down, depressed, drunk and almost dead. In terms of my own journey, uh, I was brought up very firmly in the embrace of an extended family who were very loving and very kind. And I think actually that saved me as a human. That saved me from going down the rabbit hole of depression far for a long time before I sort of gave in into, in adult terms. Because I always felt loved and supported, but never actually where I needed to feel it as a child. And my inner child has only just really healed. And I turned 61 in April. I had my first official nervous breakdown at the age of 18. And being typically Yorkshire, which is where I come from in the north of England, being typically Yorkshire, my parents were like, well, you're 18 now. Get yourself to the doctors and sort yourself out. Now, I'd only just started my drinking career as I came to couch it. But I knew instinctively that something wasn't right. So I went to see my doctor. And I, I kid you not, Michelle, I was in there all the five minutes. And I landed back outside on the pavement with a prescription in my hand. And his words ringing in my ears, take two of these twice a day and in six weeks you'll be as right as ninepence. Okay, 
that man was a genius. In my eyes, he was elevated to God status because in within about a fortnight, I was absolutely buzzing. I was happy. I was smiling. I was over-animated. You name it, I was it. What I didn't realize at that point was I was also as high as a kite. I was 18, and he'd given me um, a prescription for two diazepam, the dose I can't remember, two diazepam twice a day, every day for six weeks. And not once had he said, at the end of six weeks, come back and we'll review your meds. Now, at that time, circa 1978, diazepam was the most widely prescribed drug in the world in terms of a tranquilizer, which is what they used it for then. Actually, it had the adverse effect on me. I didn't sleep very much because I was so hyper. But at the end of six weeks, I crashed and burned because I just stopped. I didn't know I'd stopped cold turkey. I was 18 and I was doing I was told my GP was a god in my eyes. He'd made me better. My grandmother had told me that we never argued with doctors because they were intelligent. And unlike people like us, they all went to university and they knew what they were talking about. So I never thought my instinctive behavior was to believe that the doctor knew what he was doing because that was my learned pattern from familial conditioning. And of course, I crashed and burned. I didn't know what cold turkey was. I thought I'd gone mad. I didn't bother going back. I just thought I was ill. And I started having a drink here and there. Fast forward to the age of 52. I had, by that point, endured four nervous breakdowns that are, that are documented quite significantly. And on the 26th of September 2012, I went to see my GP for what was the latest in a very long line of increasingly poor blood tests in terms of liver function, kidney function, all that business. And she took one look at me looked at my results, picked the phone up, and I said to her, what are you doing? And she said, I'm calling for an ambulance. And like an idiot, I sort of looked over my shoulder and went, who for? Such was the denial that I had about the state of my drinking career at that point. And she, her words were, you, because you're in big trouble. Your liver has decompensated. It's failed. Your kidneys have gone. That's it. I woke up five days later. I don't remember anything else about that journey. From that, there was a sort of complete blank of five days. My husband says that I was never, ever unconscious in that time. I was just like, his words were, you were like a rabbit caught in headlights. You were just catatonic with shock. And I think in hindsight and with the inner work that I've done since, I now recognize that he was right. It was a sort of shock state in that, oh, my good Lord, everybody is going to know that I'm a drunk. The reality of the fact was that everybody did. It was Yorkshire's biggest open secret. And the only person who was in denial about that was myself. I used to say things like, of course, I've got a drink problem. I've got two hands, one mouth. That's a hell of a problem. If I had two mouths, I could drink twice as much. And these days I use humor greatly to sort of explain my situation because there was lots of humor in that point in my life up to that point. What I didn't realize was until maybe until about four years ago, actually, when I started this incantation of myself, was that. All my life, and certainly all my adult life, I blamed the mother who I'd come to loathe, wrongly, as it turned out. I blamed her for everything. Everything that had ever happened to me on my journey through life as a child. As a child, yes. Children, we don't choose our parents, depending on what your beliefs are. We don't choose our parents. We are born to our parents. We're gifted this life of ours to live as we see fit. From a childlike point of view, we're born conscious, but without a consciousness. That comes later. But we're born with just one agenda, two, actually, to have our needs met and to love and be loved 
unconditionally. And I grew up feeling anything but any of the above. And thus, when my own mental health started to decline in 1978, nothing was my fault. Nothing. It was her fault. She'd done this. She'd said that. She'd done this beating. Da, 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 da. In my recovery, it struck me one day that actually the root cause of my alcoholism was not the fact that I had a mother who at best tolerated me. The root cause of my alcoholism was that were the stories that I told myself surrounding the circumstances in both of my birth, of my childhood, of my teen years, and so on and so forth. And the irony of it is that on the day that I was admitted to hospital in September 2012, my mother had been dead for 13 years and she was teetotal. Go figure. Not once ever in my entire life, to my knowledge, she said, sit down, shut up and drink that. I'd done that all on my own. But the woes that I experienced in terms of my mental health, in terms of the way that I was made to feel, my inner critic and all that business, nothing was ever good enough. I grew up saying yes when no would have been far preferable. I was a people pleaser. And not once did it ever occur to me that actually she was doing the best she could in the circumstances that she also had as her life's journey. And that was a massive wake-up call. So much wisdom there. In fact, I'm born just a few months before you. And I was my mother's big mistake. So I love the fact that you've relabeled yourself as an accidental child. And also, I really relate to what you're saying because my mother barely tolerated me. I'm not saying she didn't love me, but I think she felt like her life went in a certain direction because you made your bed, you had to lay in it. And she had, my mother was a rageaholic and there's a huge amount of addiction in my family. So I can really relate to what you're saying. Although I never picked up and drank or used, in recent years, I've had to come to terms with being internally addicted to the chemicals that my brain can make. So, for example, when I was 15, I was out racing cars on a professional racetrack. I'm like, pick me, (laughs) you know, and I moved from the racetrack to the corporate sector and did 80, 100-hour weeks, you know, with impossible tasks and demands and performance requirements. So I've actually had to spend the last sort of 10 or 12 years facing what does being an adrenaline junkie is not a smart thing to be doing to your body. It catches up with you eventually. But also my mother, I got kicked out when I was 16 and had to figure out how to live life in a big city. And contrary to what happened to you, my mother kept us isolated from paternal and maternal family. It was just her, me and my brother. And I became the little mother raising my brother who was three and a half years younger than me. So consequently, I felt very well loved up to eight years old when my dad and my maternal grandfather were around. But when that relationship broke down, as you said, they went from love to warring, a very violent domestic situation in our home. When I got kicked out at 16, I was gobsmacked that a mother could do that for many, many years. It it impacted my feelings of worth. But I would say a decade or two later, I realized she'd done me a favor. Because I had had to run a household at eight years old, I just went about the business of finding a base at 16 and then traveling the world from 17 and just kept going. So I had all these skills from that environment, which was not supported in my case, 
that I translated lemons into lemon meringue. But my family, my grandfather was from Yorkshire and my maternal grandmother was from Scotland or her family was. There's secrets. I have no idea what my mother grew up in. So through 12-step programs, I came to realize exactly what you said. She's doing the best she could with what she had. And my father, who vacated when I was eight, he got out because he was, there kept being domestic violence and they were both abusers. I remember breaking up fights between five and eight years old between the growing ups in my house. But Again, I know a bit more about my paternal family, but my maternal family, I know nothing. And my mother grew up in quite privileged circumstances. So, of course, it's don't talk, don't tell. You're not allowed to. It sounds very similar in terms of neither side of my family were privileged in any way. But we very much had that household rule. What happens in this house stays in this house. And that's a heck of a burden for any child to carry. Bonkers. Absolutely. And I also resonate with the other piece you said, you know, people didn't go to university. Well, I went to university and all through my mother would say to me, people like us don't go to university. And I did not understand that I couldn't figure out why I was failing when I was achieving. But in actual fact, if I had achieved in an apprenticeship or nursing, that was acceptable. But going to university was unacceptable. So when things... Who do you think you are? That's the one. That's the one. So my first year at uni, I ended up getting struck by a car and spraining my neck. So I called my mum, I don't know why I did this, and said, mum, can I bring you up to the city to help me drive to uni? And you know what she said, don't you? People like us don't go to university. A sign that you should not be doing this. And she's like, call me next week and tell me what happens. And I'm like, I'm in a soap opera like Coronation Street or The Young and the Restless, you know, (laughs) update the episode, you know, not your daughter's injured. I struggle with that. But then I was a latchkey kid. So my other TV mums like June Lockhart on Lassie and Lost in Space were my kind of adopted mothers. I'm like, oh, boy, if mum didn't have to go to work and do stuff and wasn't. We as children, we're, we're incredibly malleable, we're incredibly intelligent and we're incredibly intuitive. We find other ways to fix our needs that gentleness, that warmth, that embracing. And through a TV screen, especially in the late 50s and early 60s, that it was there in abundance, wasn't it? Let's face it, the dream families and all that business. So our, our TV shows in the 70s were from the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> we were way behind. Absolutely, absolutely. But I am so grateful to these addictions for getting the lessons that I needed to learn that I may not have learned if I hadn't have experienced. Absolutely. And I don't know how you feel about this. I now know that we're all sent here, whatever our journey takes, whatever path our journey takes through life, I should say, is no more or less than two things. Number one, I say a lot to people, that moment is your life. That is, oh, it's gone. That's it. Every single moment that we're gifted is a blessing when you truly understand that. When we get to a certain point in time, that man-made construct that drives us all insane and makes us think we're stressed when actually we're not. That's a whole different conversation. When we get to a certain point in time and we look back, that's what we call our life. The billions of these that have been strung together and we look back across time and think, wow, that was my life. Well, that is my life. When you've had an experience, such as I did, and not just me, clearly millions of other people, if not billions, across the planet, I 
going back to what I said at the beginning, the first five days, I have no conscious memory. My doctor came, my consultant in the hospital came to see me five days in, towards the end of the fifth day, sat down, told me I was a very lucky, oh, I was a very sick young lady. And like an idiot, I was still laughing at that point because he'd call me young and I was 52. And he said, no, 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 I'm not joking. You've won the battle, but you've not won the war. You're still dying. In that moment, I remember going, what the actual, I looked at my watch and I just said, I don't have time. They said, did you not just hear what I said? you're dying and I went no 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 no. I heard what you said what I'm telling you is I've been an idiot and I do not have time now to do the things that I always said I was going to do tandem skydive from an airplane go to India do this do that do the other he left he was a very he is I still see him three times four times a year now for because of the state of my health but he left he delivered his verdict that I was dying off he went he was late delivering that verdict that day the younger of our three children was early arriving and she found me crying. She'd seen me cry a lot, but never a father. He had to tell her that actually, and it was no secret whilst, whilst I was there. There were never any secrets in our family. And he had to tell her that actually I was still dying. And in that split second, she let out the most guttural scream that I've ever heard and I think ever will hear. And she held my gaze for what sent like forever. It was the longest of times, but I'm pretty sure it was just, but it's polarized in your mind. And the way she looked at me, I knew then that I'd got everything wrong. I knew then because in her eyes, I saw hatred. She hated me. Fear, anger, but most of all, love. And it was a love that was probably going to sound a little bit cliche, but it was a love that was pure in that she had the love in her eyes for me that at that time in my life, I didn't, I didn't even like myself, but I love myself. But certainly I'd never seen in the eyes of my own mother. And in that split second, it's what Bob Proctor would call a paradigm shift. In that split second, my world shifted on its axis to such a degree that I knew that I didn't know if I was going to get out of there, but I knew that if I did, then things would change for the better forever, not just for me, but instinctively for my family and and somehow intuitively for the greater good of others. As I thought it, it was gone. And I actually spent 18 months further physically recovering. And I started to write, I started to journal. And people started to pick up on the blogs and stuff that I did and asked me to speak. And fast forward eight and a half years now, almost, I'm doing things like this today because I can, because I want to, and because I will literally spend however long I've got left on this planet helping other people to understand that we individually, let alone collectively, we are the only ones who have the power to control a mind that is ours alone to control. It's not easy. It's far easier, or at least it was in my case, it's far easier to drink five bottles of Chardonnay a day, which is what I was drinking on the day I was admitted to hospital, and almost kill yourself than face the demons of the past. And yet the demons of the past, once they were exposed, actually were no more or less than less than ideal memories in a story that I hadn't written by a woman who in turn hadn't had her story written for her. And we were both of us doing the best that we could. And we both of us stuffed up. I was 39 when she died. I had a long time to put things right. And I didn't. I carried that badge of anger and disgust and loathing. I carried that with me for another 13 years. And it was that that fueled my addiction. And that that gave me a reason to have an addiction. And actually, there's a saying, is there not, that the chains of habit are too weak to be felt until they're too strong to be broken. At 52, there was no way on God's green earth that I could break those habits. 
if I hadn't gone to my GP that day, I found out subsequently that 24 hours later, I would have actually been dead. It came that close. The medical intervention saved my life. Prof Gleason's words, I think, became the, the gauntlet that he threw down on the day that I walked out of hospital on my own two feet saying, you'll be back in my clinic in three months and you will be drunk. And I turned around to him and I said, and I'm from Yorkshire. I'm not an Irishman. You've just challenged me and you're going to lose. And we still spar now, eight and a half years later. I think he deems me to be one of his success stories. But in actual fact, the medical intervention aside, I credit, number one, the paradigm shift that I had when my daughter entered the room. And number two, I think the reverse psychology of his on the day I left hospital. And in both of those, I found my why. And for me as an addict, and I still consider myself to be an addict, I haven't had drinking 3,075 days, I think it is, or thereabouts, of any description alcoholic. I don't eat food that has been cooked in alcohol or anything like that. I'm very evangelical about that. But the reason that I am is because I, in finding my why, I'd had a should for a very long time. I should stop drinking. I'd had one for donkey's years. From the next time, pretty much from the day when I lost my trust in GPs with prescription meds and I began to self-medicate with alcohol. That's how that started. And then that was not working. So I'd go back and get some more pills and they weren't working. I'd intertwine the two and then I'd have them both together. It became a mess. So my should had been there for a very long time. I'd had a must for nearly as long as I'd had a should. But in the paradigm shift that I experienced on the back of the day that he told me that actually I was still dying, that paradigm shift in the eyes of my daughter, became my why, which was bigger than any must or should put together that I think I'd ever needed. And it was simultaneously the best and yet the worst day of my life, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. And in fact, I think I have this right. Bill W. and the doctor who started AA, Bill W. discovered recovery. But the doctor, I believe, died still actively drinking. He was unable So it is such Russian roulette in getting recovery. And also there's a saying in the programs, you've got to give it to keep it. So I think you're doing all the right stuff and being out there full on. My addiction story, as is yours, as is anybody else who is following this path, they're equally our own journeys. But very much there is a familial trait. I'm the elder of four siblings. And out of deference to them, I'm not going to go into their stories, but two of the other three siblings are still actively struggling with their own journey with alcohol. Our father was a good man, a kind man, loved his family. And I would say a typically working class 60s Yorkshire miner, worked hard, played hard, drank hard, drank hard. And he gave up drinking seven years before he died because he suddenly, he had some routine blood results that had said, actually, if you don't behave, George, your liver's going to pack in. And he went home and he literally poured everything that he had down the sink straight away no problem he wanted to live he didn't value his drink more than he valued his life and I think that was more a measure of the man in terms of what he was as a person as a character that had just become a social habit and he was actually not addicted he drank far too much but there was no dependency he literally stopped just like that interesting I have a similar story my paternal side are Welsh so my grandfather was a coal miner and my father was the youngest of 12 and grew up in quite a brutal home life as well and yeah he left when I was eight he came back when I was 27 when my husband died and it was a very unfortunate alcoholic binge time and then we connected up in the early 90s when I was going to be in Sydney and I was going to see him and 
I was very equivocal about whether I wanted to see him because I had this, all this childhood memories of being well loved, but my mother and him would have physical fights. And then he had done that when my husband had died, he had called me my mother. He thought I was my mother. So there was a situation unfolding in front of my three small children on the day we buried their father. I was unexpectedly widowed. So I had a lot of equivocal feelings. And so I was going to be in Sydney and we were going to link up, but we, this is like a God wink. We kind of, I, tr- I had the address, but I couldn't get hold of him. And on the day that I managed to go see him, which was the day before I was leaving to go back to New Zealand, he moved. So I literally got to his residence an hour after he'd moved, but it was before he had left a forwarding address. So by the time they got hold of him, he called and I'd left to go back to New Zealand. And of course, I didn't have enough trust to leave him information. Well, it turns out he died earlier this century and his widow sent a letter to me in Bermuda and bless the postal system, they found me. This is how strange your stories can get. My father had left on my birthday in September and was coming back for Christmas when I was eight and that didn't happen. But I got the letter that he had died in June, the week of Christmas. And that was like 10 years after we had tried to connect up in Australia. So his widow asked me to come gather his ashes and I went to do that and I kid you not, she looked exactly like my mother, except she wasn't rageful. She had a daughter named Michelle, and she had a son who had the same name as my brother. Her daughter, Michelle, had three little kids like I did, the same ages. And then I discover my father had been an AA for the last 10 years of his life had anyone else in my family in any kind of recovery program. So you just never know how the story is going to finish being written. Of course, I have many regrets about not connecting up, but it took me a while to resolve and dissolve those feelings. And yeah, then I got the chance to go to Sydney and see that his last 10 years had been really wonderful by a very supportive family and he had found sobriety. And, you know, that sort of brings it full circle, doesn't it? We do the best that we can given the tools that we have and the time frame that we're in. And the time frame, again, is a man-made construct. We only know it's, it was 10 years because society tells us it was 10 years because somebody somewhere invented a sundial that ultimately became a digital clock and all the rest of it. And certainly for me, I don't know about you in terms of your own drinking pre-sobriety, but I, lots of my, apart from my, my backstory, story that I told myself, which I now know is a crock, I very firmly bought into the stress factor. You know, I would have too much to do and not enough time to do it. And yet going back to that, this moment, every single day that we are gifted from the second we open our eyes, go full circle 24 hours, we get 86,400 of those moments every day in forms of seconds. And we might get up of a day especially if you're in corporate or in business and all the rest of it, and you've got a million things to do and you don't have enough time to do it. And the way I work with people these days is to help them to understand, yep, you were born here, Michelle. I was born there. At some point, we're both of us going to shuffle off this mortal coil. We neither of us know the amount of time we have in between. We know it's finite, but we don't know how long it is. But what we do know for sure is that each of those 86,400 windows of opportunity on a daily basis will be the same for each of us on a daily basis. And it's the time management that's the issue, not the number of things that we have to do. And I never, I don't know about you, but I never, until this last 
six years because I was I took me two years to physically recover but certainly in this last six years there isn't one day that goes by now that I am not at the top of my own to-do list I use a hashtag across social media self-care <laughs> hashtag sanity not vanity because if we don't look out it's the oxygen mask analogy isn't it on an airplane if that oxygen mask drops down and you don't breathe you're not going to be any good to anybody on that plane, be it your children or your elderly relative. or your, You're not going to be able to save anybody if you don't breathe. And once I got that little nugget, everything else sort of fell into place. Wish I'd known that 50 years ago. Oh, my gosh, I understand. I, For me, when my first husband died unexpectedly, I had my three children looking at me like, are you going to die? And yeah. I had to, well, grieving was not easy, but I still had three kids that I needed to take care of. I was unable to check out and I did not want my children having to parent me like I had to parent my mother. But the gift that my deceased husband left me with is exactly what you're saying. The present is the gift. Every minute is a blessing. I love how you put that. On the other side, I just want to go back to... I've not been addicted to external chemicals. And I'll share this story. When I was a teenager, I was at a beach party. I did drink and I remember drinking a bottle of schnapps with a Russian, peach schnapps. And I never got drunk. I never became unsteady, didn't know, you know, not what other people were doing. And the Russian chap turned around to me and he said, you have a problem. He said, if you can drink like this, that's dangerous. Wow. And I, I didn't understand. But what I took away from that was actually, I didn't need to have a drink to have a good time. But with my history, I think of, of child growing up in a violent household, you know, you can never not be vigilant. Yeah. On the other hand, it wasn't until decades later through the adult children's program that I learned about being internally addicted. So I had managed having addicted people in my circle. So Al-Anon was definitely a resting place for me. But with ACOA, I suddenly came to learn about the internal chemicals your brain can addict you to, like being an adrenaline junkie and not practicing self-care, practicing over-care for everything else on the performance wheel, but not on caring for yourself. So I was very blessed by the Russian with the schnapp saying to me, you've got a problem. If you can drink like this and not get drunk, you should not be drinking because I had no off switch. And that was a gift I did not understand for a lot of years. But I did take away that wise piece of me was like, well, actually, I don't need to drink to have fun and I don't need to drug to have fun. But what I didn't know was, you know, that was around the age and stage that I was an adrenaline junkie racing cars and quite dangerous situations and high speeds and doing other things. You know, I was not risk adverse at all. But, you know, having had the childhood history of people getting drunk and being violent, that was a gift that he gave me that day that I internalized and that I could have fun without substances. Let's take a ballpark example of a roller coaster. I personally would rather stick pins in my eyes than go on a roller coaster. I did it once. I was on the front row of Bolivian and you're staring 300 feet down. These are in the days I was drinking. You're staring 300 feet down. It's a straight vertical drop in about 10 seconds. And I knew I was going to die. I need another drink because I know I'm going to be dead when I hit that bottom. My friend sat inside of me was screaming hysterically with excitement, stone cold sober, adrenaline junkie that he was I'm terrified and I'm only there because I've been asked to be there we were both in that moment feeling exactly the same thing the only difference physiologically we were experiencing exactly the same feeling 
the only difference was the word that we attributed to how it made us feel. Me, I was scared, somethingless, and he was practically orgasmic with excitement. And yet he was really happy and thrilled, and I was scared to death. And he doesn't drink either. He's got that inbuilt ability to get the buzz that people like me get from being rat assed frankly. But whereas his is continual, I don't think he's an adrenaline junkie per se, but his much preferable way of dealing with life is to embrace it with a look of excitement on his face. Whereas I would, I looked at it through glasses that weren't even rose tinted, they were black. I was just so depressed. And I needed the lift that I thought, that I perceived alcohol gave me. And of course, with that, you get the elevation, but then you crash and burn and then some. And when you rinse repeated the cycle to the degree that I was on at that time, five bottles of wine a day, every day, you're never actually sober. You're never actually sober. And that, that in itself, and you long since the day I was admitted to hospital, it was some 18 months afterwards, I tried to pair back from the point of admission to hospital, I tried to pair back when was the last time I actually genuinely felt happy without the need for a drink? And I don't know. Even now, eight and a half years sober, I actually don't know how many of my happy memories were not alcohol-fueled. And that, for me, is quite sad. I don't labour the point. I don't give it much credence because these days I live mindfully in the present every single day. And like you, I have good days, bad days, and indifferent days and everything in between. And I take from each day what I can but I always take from each day something that I am grateful for because living consciously you you can do that so for example I'm there with your roller coaster friend I've ridden the wildest roller coasters in the world but now I know do I want to create that cocktail of internal chemicals because they can be just as addictive and I think this is a much missed area adrenal exhaustion which is which a heightened state of adrenaline frenzy, if you like. If you fall into the realms of adrenal exhaustion, exhaustion, then within six months, you're in big trouble because your body can only produce finite amounts of adrenaline. If you're continually depleting it, it is pretty much, it, it's not deemed to be as much. I think it's not widely accepted as such across most medical circles at the minute, but it's equally as dangerous as end-stage liver failure because your body can't make up for the time. It doesn't have the time to put things back in place if you're continually on that adrenaline rush, does it? To be a child in the kind of environment I was growing up, you're living in hypervigilance of adrenaline. So I took the adrenaline outside the house and that was a norm for me. So I went off racing cars. Now I do not want anything that is on that level because if, if I'm reading this right in terms of internal chemicals, I do not need to trigger that cascade. It doesn't actually benefit my life to have those extremes, ups and downs and costs on the physical. No, absolutely. The the, the body is an amazing machine without all the metal and nuts and bolts and things. But it's an amazing machine that is primed. It's designed to keep us safe and healthy. We abuse it in so many ways that we don't even understand, most of us. You might not drink and you might not smoke, but you might be addicted to stress for argument's sake. Or you might be addicted to saying yes when no would suffice. And I think it's important to know, or certainly in terms of the research I've done in this last eight years or so, it led me to understand that everything, going back to what I said right towards the very beginning, we're born into this world conscious, but we don't yet have a consciousness. That comes very quickly afterwards when inherently we start to suckle because we know something's changed. We learn very quickly that if we make the sound, 
or increasingly louder as we grow, that our needs are met. We don't know that our needs are a wet nappy or a hunger in our belly or whatever. We just know that something's making us uncomfortable. So we'll squawk and our human being, we don't know yet that it's a human being, something happens to make us feel comfortable and safe. So we shut up until the next time. We learn very quickly that if we cry, our needs are met. By the time we're two, aka the terrible twos, Parents around the world in their billions are screaming at their children to shut up and give them a break. And suddenly, two-year-olds around the world are going, hang on a minute, I've been doing this for two years and now it doesn't work. I'll have to find something else. I'll paint the radiator or I'll pull the plug out of the bath or whatever. That's our first realise that we don't know at two. We don't realise that that's our first learned behaviour pattern being interrupted. The pattern interrupt there is, no, the grown-ups aren't going to put up with my tantrums anymore. We learn everything we come to know about ourselves by circa age seven, not to seven, the imprinting years. We form our worldview. It's not our worldview because we're only not to seven. It's a societal, environmental, familial conditioning. Oh, isn't she beautiful? Isn't he ugly? God, I wish she'd stop eating those sweets. Isn't he a date? Isn't he a little darling? We grow up. With a, with a false viewpoint of both of what we're like and what our siblings are like. It's why sibling rivalry kicks in. Seven to 14 become our modeling role. Our parents are doing this, this, and this, so I'll do it. Why are you doing that? Well, you do it. Go to your room. You're grounded. Hang on a minute. Parenting is the most responsible job in the world, bar not. You can forget the leaders of the Western world, whoever the hell they are at any given moment in time. Parenting is the most responsible job in the world, and we are all of us as parents. Your parents, my parents, our grandparents, we're all of us doing the best we can with what we've got in our space in time. And then we turn into professional swans. Talk about professional swans. Essentially was that person. A professional swan for me is an adult, largely, is somebody who gives the impression that they're gliding serenely through life without having a care in the world. And yet underneath the surface, they're paddling like crazy to swim upstream, not wanting the rest of the world to know that they're lacking, that they're feeling vulnerable, that they can't cope, or God forbid, they, want to, they don't want to be seen to be a failure. We, I think all of us, particularly if you work in corporate and business, particularly if you're self-employed, particularly if you're any of the above and happen to have a family of your own, or maybe elderly parents, or dogs, or cats, or guinea pigs, you put the whole package together. And going back to what I was saying right at the very beginning, 24 hours in a day, 86,400 seconds, got to do my work, got to do the house, got to see to the kids. Da, 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 da. The professional swan in all of us, male and female, is that person who does not want to be seen to be anything other than, in brackets, in inverted commas, perfect. It took me a very long time to realize that perfection is an ideal. What you deem to be perfect, perfect, I would go, really? Go back to the roller coaster. My idea of heaven, my idea of hell. It's that type of thing. So I work with these professional swans these days to help them to understand that actually it's okay to say no. It's even more okay to have personal boundaries and reinforce that by saying no. It's okay not to be okay. And it's okay to let people see us for who and what we are, because whoever and whatever that is, we're enough. It might not be that Joe Bloggs thinks we're enough, but you know what? Joe Bloggs doesn't pay our bills. You know, we, all of us, without exception, arrive here as perfect beings. 
The perfection element, again, is a societal construct. Thank you, Sue. You know. I would love for you to share about the work that you do with my listeners. Okay, so these days my work falls into two, two camps, so to speak. I, I have what I call my preventative arm. So I work with children to empower them to understand that self-belief gives us the wings to fly and the courage to fall, safe that we can get straight back up and try again, aka growth mindset, etc. When I work with adults, it's more a, more a curative arm in terms of I help them to reframe the way they see themselves their situations, their lives. One of my premises is that every single situation that we will ever find ourselves in has two sides to it, two sides to every story, every single time. And when we can apply that to the way we view ourselves and our lives and begin to take responsibility for our part in our life, then things like courage, our fear factor starts to fade away and our courage muscle expands, it grows. The more courage we have, the more resilient we become, and the more we're able to stand up and look at the world. That song from Greatest Showman, This Is Me, Look At Me, This Is Me. We all of us have a God-given right, depending on your viewpoint, to be able to stand up and say to the world that this is me. Like me or loathe me, this is me. And I make no apologies for that. And I work with these people to help them to understand that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about us. It matters more than anything else on this planet, what we think about ourselves. And I help people, if you like, to, when I say to reframe the way they see themselves, I, they reverse their stories, essentially. But I help them to confidently create the change that they need but haven't yet got there and ultimately lead happier, more meaningful lives. The addendum there would be happier, more meaningful lives in their own way and on their own terms. Moreover, without feeling the need to apologise for themselves, ever. Thank you, Sue. You have been a woman of wisdom and I really appreciate your contribution. Well, thank you for having me. Dr. Michelle St. Jane is a conscious steward of meaningful leadership in the world and the wider cosmos. Tune in every Thursday for real talk around life, leadership, and your conscious journey. Be ready to create and cultivate your dreams and soul-hearted desires. Your support is valued. Please subscribe. Leave a review and a rating. But more importantly, share with your connections.